everyone, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to This Week Again. I'm your host, Suzanne Posel. We're starting now in Season 2 of This Week Again. This is the first episode of Season 2, and you just heard our new opening music. Not that I'm going to ask you what you think of it, because at This Week Again, we don't ask questions we don't want answers to. (laughs) And with that out of the way, we're going to start off Season 2. To episode one with all of the deets of the writer's strike move on to drones over russia and follow all of that up with a little bit of alternative history via netflix <laughs> let's begin shall we when you've been in politics for over half a century you become known for a few things maybe a signature look like aviator sunglasses or being the guy who's guaranteed to gap at any public event Luckily, President Joe Biden was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner where saying what you want to say and all of the appropriate things for laughs is exactly what everyone expects. And Mr. Biden did not disappoint. I get that age is completely reasonable issue. It's in everybody's mind and everyone. By everyone, I mean the New York Times. You same over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's a man of his prime. But the job isn't finished. I mean... It is finished for Tucker Carlson. It's great the cable news networks are here tonight. MSNBC owned by NBC Universal. Fox News owned by Dominion Voting Systems. You might think I don't like Rupert Murdoch. That's simply not true. How could I dislike a guy who makes me look like Harry Styles? Your favorite Fox News reporters were able to attend because they were fully vaccinated and boosted. This year, with that $787 million settlement, they're here because they couldn't say no to a free meal. I'd call Fox honest, fair, and truthful. But then I could be sued for defamation. If you find yourself disoriented or confused, it's either you're drunk or Marjorie Taylor Greene. But not everybody loves NPR. Elon Musk tweeted that it should be defunded. Well, the best way to make NPR go away is for Elon Musk to buy it. Ron DeSantis, I had a lot of Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis jokes ready. But Mickey, but Mickey Mouse beat the hell out of me, got there first. <laughs> Dagnabbit, that old Joe's still got it. And by it, I mean good script writers, which is perfect timing considering the Writers Guild of America is now officially on strike because greedy studio execs just can't bring themselves to pay writers a living wage, let alone a fair wage. For a little FYI, if your favorite shows are all of a sudden on rerun go around, here's why. The Writers Guild calling a strike after negotiators were unable to reach a deal with the studios and streamers, saying, for the sake of our present and our future, we have been given no other choice. More than 11,000 members of the Writers Guild walking off the job and on the picket line now, late night talk shows among the first to shut down. Over the last decade, median weekly writer-producer pay is down 23% when adjusted for inflation. They're not seeing any of the residuals that you used to see back in the old days with the streamers is an upfront payout and you're done. The union is looking for more pay upfront, higher minimum pay, and more writers per show and wants to regulate the use of artificial intelligence amid fears it may threaten writers' jobs. What we are now witnessing is a sequel to the epic battle of 2007 between the Alliance of Motion Pictures Producers, representing nearly every major studio in Hollywood, and the Writers Guild of America, a scrawny group of people who represent the backbone of every major studio's corporate model. Because without writers, you don't have a script. 
and without a script, well, we all know the babbling incoherent mess that most podcasts can be. But getting back to the writers, since 2007, the landscape of scripted television and movies has changed dramatically with the advent of streaming. In the name of exposition, writers who get paid residuals for syndication or in poorly educated terms, whenever a TV show or movie is worked on, is available for you to watch on cable television, then the writer gets paid. But with streaming services, writers do not get paid those residuals when their TV shows or movies that they worked on are streamed on any platform. And therein lies the problem. Roll tape. The studios are trying to eliminate the writer's room. They're trying to make the room smaller. They're trying to employ us on a freelance basis. We want to make sure that writers are paid the same in streaming as they are on television. These companies are making enormous amounts of money. Their profits are going up. It's ridiculous for them to plead poverty when the writers who are making their shows, some of them are not able to pay their rent or their mortgages. Writers who have had to go on assistance. If you look at these companies, they're making more money than ever. It's the people who make the shows for them that are making less. It's no secret that studios are now using streaming services. And with those streaming services come hiring smaller writing staff and demanding more and more content from less and less people, leading to a 23% devaluation of the writer's work, which has resulted in more work for the same pay, which is actually working for less. And don't forget that they've lost those residuals because of streaming. So they're making a lot less money than they were a decade ago. And not for nothing, but in this day and age, demanding a living wage is just basic survival. And the majority of Americans support workers who simply want what's fair. Or in the immortal words of Billie Jean. From now on, we're doing this our way. Fair is fair. We didn't start this. We didn't mean it to happen. But we're not giving up till you pay. Fair is fair. Here at This Week Again, we stand with every writer, and most notably Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor for writing The Legend of Billie Jean. Fair is fair. And while we're on the subject of some fucked up shit, the little Russian president that could is having a Reichstag moment, and he wants everyone to know about it. Russian authorities are accusing Ukraine of attempting to attack the Kremlin with a pair of drones. Russian officials labeled the alleged attempt as a, quote, terrorist act. Presidential press service in, in Moscow, and it says the Kyiv regime attempted to strike the Kremlin residence of the president of the Russian Federation with unmanned aerial vehicles. It goes on to say we regard these actions uh, as a planned terrorist action and an attempt on the president. And then it concludes by saying the Russian side reserves the right to take retaliatory measures where and when it sees fit. As a side note, there have been rumors circling around the intelligence community for the last year or so that Russia's little poot has thyroid cancer, which happens to be the least deadly of all the cancers. So I don't know, maybe there's your assassin. And now I'd like to present to you all the deets on this supposed drone strike. I hope you're sitting down. There was a video claiming to depict a drone striking Putin's unusually large home for someone so very, very small, suddenly appearing online and then instantly shared across social media during, of course, the wee hours when trolls from Russia creep into comment threads while the rest of the Western world is all snuggled in their beds. 
And in a not surprising plot point, this mysterious and yet widely shared video is followed up 12 hours later with higher quality videos showing up online. And wouldn't you know it? Now we've got 4K def and multiple angles. The first video came out 2.37 Moscow time, and that showed what claimed to be the aftermath of some sort of drone attack against the Kremlin. Then there's nothing else. And that first video, which was posted on Telegram, was the first and only video. Then there's a 12-hour gap, roughly, in which nothing was posted at all. And then several videos suddenly emerge, almost at the same time, around 3 p.m. Moscow time. And those videos were of a high quality. They showed the aftermath of this alleged attack and also showed the video of the Kremlin before the attack took place and show what appears to be a drone flying at high speed and, and exploding as it about to impact uh, a dome inside the Kremlin compound. And that, my friends, is the timeline of drone attack videos. And it's important to note that Telegraph is where the whole thing started. And if you're not up on your propaganda hotspots, then I suggest you Google Telegraph app and Russian propaganda. But be warned, that's a whole bad kind of night. And it's also worth mentioning again that the Russian government didn't issue their statement of intent to cause harm to Ukraine when the first video surfaced, but waited until their higher quality and multiple angle videos were uploaded 12 hours later. Because when you're going to attack a nation that has been successfully staving off all of your previous attacks over the last year, you need a Reichstag moment to be in 4K HD. And to add insult to a drone attack, Russia is now accusing the U.S. government of colluding with Ukraine. Well, the Kremlin claims that Ukraine, the Kyiv regime, as they say, is responsible for the attack. But they, according to the Kremlin, conducted this drone attack with the authorization of uh, Washington, D.C., so of the United States. And, and this morning, a top Russian official accused the U.S. of planning it. That accusation came from uh, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov saying attempts to disown this from Kyiv in Washington are absolutely ridiculous. We know very well decisions on such attacks are made not in Kyiv, but Washington. Of course, Russia is claiming the U.S. is involved after the attack on the Kremlin because it justifies the fact that Russia waited nearly 24 hours before sending 24 drones to strike Ukraine, specifically pointing the majority of them at Kyiv in retaliation. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky confirmed his military has the best aim because they shot down 18 out of the 24 Russian drones before they hit their targets. Sounds to me like Russia's found footage approach to escalating a war with Ukraine into a beef with the United States has Putin made this whole shit up all over it. And that would be jumping to a conclusion, perhaps. But maybe we should dig just a little bit deeper into what the drone strikes are really about. And maybe... The attacks are coming from inside Russia. Roll tape. One former Russian lawmaker, now in exile and linked with groups carrying out operations in Russia, tells the Kremlin attack is the work 
Russian partisans. Some of them are focused on uh, railroad sabotages, some of them doing arsons uh, of military recruitment posts, uh, some of them doing attacks uh, on uh, activists, pro-war activists, some of them doing hacking attacks. And recent weeks, even days, have seen an upsurge in unexplained attacks inside Russian territory. Train derailment in the Bryansk region near the Ukrainian border. Key oil storage facility in southern Russia near annexed Crimea set ablaze also using a drone. Oh, that little Russian poot thought he was clever when local anti-Russian government groups did what some would claim is impossible and flew a couple of drones hitting the impenetrable Kremlin not once but twice. From the inside, these local resistance groups are embarrassing Putin with derailing trains, setting oil storage facilities on fire, and now booping the Kremlin with drones. Now, I don't know it for a fact that the first drone attack video was posted to the internet by a member of a local resistance group, and 12 hours later, the Kremlin produced their poorly produced footage of the drone attack to not only save face in front of a ragtag team of resistors who penetrated their impenetrables, but also used the attack as justification for sending 24 drones to attack Ukraine they were probably planning on sending anyway, with the accusation of collusion with Ukraine and the United States, I just know it's true. And speaking of how a video can be used to promote false narratives, did you know that the Egyptian queen Cleopatra was black? Well, don't feel bad. History and the head of antiquities in Egypt and just about everyone else on the planet didn't know either. Apparently, Jada, I was going to slap Will if he didn't slap Chris, Pinkett Smith, was sitting on this information, waiting for the right and mostly important lucrative time to present alternative facts to the world via a docu-series on Netflix. And wouldn't you know it, some folks really aren't happy about that. Egypt are accusing Netflix of misrepresenting history in Netflix's new docuseries called Queen Cleopatra. The country is actually criticizing the decision to cast a black woman to play the title role in series reenactments. Netflix says the casting decision was intended to acknowledge the centuries-long conversation about the ruler's race and the multicultural history of Egypt. Officials in Cairo are calling it a blatant historical fallacy, claiming that Cleopatra was fair-skinned and of Greek descent. Damn, you know you fucked up when an entire country is like, that is really not how that went down. And while the incels and white nationalists across the internet have had a field day with this, there is a point to be made when it comes to depicting historical figures in modern docuseries. Cleopatra isn't the figment of a Danish man's mind circa 1867, She was a real woman and deserves to be represented with the most accuracy possible. And that means we can't ignore her very pasty lineage due to the fact that her family originated from Macedonia and Egypt became part of the Macedonian Empire in 300 to 32 BCE. So no matter how badly we might want to see representation on streaming services, Gender swapping, 
Race swapping, sexual orientation swapping all day long when it comes to elves, 1970s cartoon characters, or Victorian era fairy tales, where it's fiction to begin with. Who cares if the characters are changed with every generation and reflect inclusivity? But incorrectly portraying historical figures for the purpose of cashing in on those who are sensitive to equal racial representation on streaming services is a really bad look, even for Jada. Especially when we've got real problems like white folk in Florida who are upset that their children find out in school that African slaves built the White House. Now is not the time to switch around just because Disney has got a black mermaid. So while we're on the subject of things you never thought you would have to say out loud or see happen, a former New York barista turned amazing Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Florida's biggest forehead and alleged child sex trafficker Matt Gates have now joined forces to try and stop insider trading in Congress. Roll tape. Representatives Matt Gates and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have teamed up to try to put an end to stock trading by members of Congress that oftentimes looks like insider trading. Have introduced the bipartisan Restoring Faith in Government Act, which would prohibit, quote, financial investments by members of Congress and their spouses and any dependents. Ocasio-Cortez said the ability of members of Congress to trade stock erodes the public's trust in government. When members have access to classified information, we should not be trading in the stock market on it. It's really that simple. To ensure that Congress is not so compromised, we should disallow congressional stock trading for the same reason we don't allow the referee to bet on the game. Well, folks, I'm not a meteorologist, but I'm pretty sure hell just froze over because I agree with everything that great forehead from Florida just said. Ugh. Makes me feel dirty inside. And by the way, folks, Matt is not very special. AOC tried this last year working with the worst speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, on a bill that would stop members of Congress from using their knowledge of their position to make money on the stock market. And wouldn't you know it, that kind of started a bipartisan but very slow trend. It's rare these days for this divided Congress to agree on absolutely anything, but there may be one issue. It has the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Kevin McCarthy. They're both among members of Congress pushing for new restrictions on how lawmakers trade stocks. Democratic Senator John Ossoff just released a bill that would force lawmakers to put their assets into a blind trust or pay a fine of their entire salary. GOP Senator Josh Hawley is working on a version two, and in the House, there's already a bipartisan bill called the Trust in Congress Act. This comes only a few weeks after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi doubled down on members' right to invest in the stock market. Should members of Congress and their spouses be banned from trading individual stocks while serving in Congress? No, I don't know to this second one. This is a free market and people we are a free market economy. They should be able to participate in that. No offense to the D beside Nancy Pelosi's name, but she's got a reputation of knowing which stocks are going to go up and which are going to go down. So, of course, she would be for Congress and their family members trading stocks like it's no big deal. 
These people make $174,000 a year being elected officials. And yet somehow Nancy Pelosi's net worth as of 2018 was over $114 million. Even if she saved all the money she's made from being first elected to Congress in 1987 to 2022, that's only $609,000. Where the hell did she get the other $107.9 million? Well, when you make the laws, you get to decide what's illegal. And since there's very little restriction on Congress members using their knowledge from being in Congress to make stock trading decisions, that's never been a problem. You know, using the government to make you very, very wealthy. Economists have studied the portfolios of members of Congress and find they systematically outperform the stock market. Senators' trades outperform the market by 12% per year. The 2008 financial crisis turned out to be a free-for-all for insider trading on Capitol Hill. 35 members cashed out on information they received from meetings with Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and others. One of those attending was Alabama Representative Spencer Backus. While Backus was publicly trying to keep the economy from cratering, he was privately betting that it would, buying option funds that would go up in value if the market went down. He would make a variety of trades and profit at a time when most Americans were losing their shirts. This is why people find it very difficult to donate to any campaign of any sitting member of Congress, because we all know that they each have a net worth that they couldn't possibly spend in the little time they have left, since most of Congress is between the age of 58 and 63. And things like, why did Texas Republican Michael McCall make $66 million in 2021 trading stocks? Why did Republican from Oklahoma and member of the Homeland Security Committee, Kevin Hearn, buy an estimated $100,000 in Lockheed Martin stock just two weeks before the company announced an $11 billion contract with the U.S. Air Force back in 2021? Or why did Rand the Perm Paul from Kentucky's wife buy stock in a pharmaceutical company that was making an alternative treatment to the COVID vaccine right before the pandemic hit? And if you think that's bad, oh, wait, it is so much worse. The timing of the investment itself is also under fire, as there are conflicting reports that suggest Congress was briefed on the dangers of the coronavirus at that time, while the public was still largely unaware of the threat. The Kentucky Curly Q's wife bought an excess of 15,000 shares in Gilead, a pharmaceutical corporation producing an antiviral treatment for COVID based on her husband's prior knowledge of COVID becoming a problem or because anti-vaxxer Rand thought buying the stock himself looked a bit too sussy considering he went on and on after the stock purchase to publicly call for the use of antivirals to combat COVID instead of the vaccine, which now kind of looks like a really, really long and drawn out ad campaign. 
And that makes Jerry Curl Paul the poster boy for the Stock Act, which was passed in the long ago time of 2012, just 11 years before the Kentucky day trader used his wife to insider trade, making him guilty of violating a law that he knew was already a law. See, according to the Stock Act, Congress members and their spouses have 45 days to publicly report purchasing or selling any stock. And the Pauls, well, they waited 16 months to report their purchase, and that's illegal. And by illegal, I mean nobody's really going to do anything about it. It is certainly illegal for members of Congress to partake in insider trading. Proving that is very difficult. If you want an alum on insider trading, good luck. DOJ has yet to successfully convict an elected member of Congress based on this law. Even if the law is followed, it barely has any teeth. Nearly 50 lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, and nearly 200 of their staffers have repeatedly violated the Stock Act with almost no consequences. You can make tens of millions of dollars with privileged information. And what's the penalty for failing to report these purchases? It's as low as $200. Wow. $200. That is all it costs for a man who's worth $31 million. Money he's I don't know, made by doing lots of insider trading over the course of his tenure in Congress, wink, wink, nod, nod, to break a law written for the sole purpose to deter people like the Kentucky baboon from doing what he did because, let's be fair, folks, the punishment, it doesn't fit the crime. And to add insult to, haha, Congress can do things other people can't, Rand voted along with many other congressional inside traders to re-up the Insider Trading Prohibition Act of 2021. Because when you're doing something shady, you want to make sure everyone else gets punished for it. So good for AOC and the head Gates for picking up the mantle that has been picked up by many before them. Another generation of elected officials trying to stop Congress' long-held tradition of making its members rich by using government secrets to manipulate the stock market. Here's a shrug and a meh for your valiant effort that hopefully won't fall to the wayside once Chuck Grassley and Diane Feinstein share their super secret stock predictions with you and you pay the $200 fine and make a public apology for clearing tens of millions of dollars just for having the job that you have. And that's all I have to say about that. New episodes of This Week Again will always air on Sunday unless we change our mind and we will definitely let you know. Follow the show wherever you can find us on social media and listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts like iHeartRadio and Spotify. And um, thank you for listening.